Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Okay, and we are on with Dr. Gary Habermas. And uh, guys, I'm really excited to introduce you to this fine gentleman right here who is a world-renowned scholar. But uh, hey, Dr. Gary, a little bit from you, just a brief introduction uh, as to what you are up to right now and kind of how you got there. What I'm up to? Well, I teach at Liberty University. Mm -hmm. I'm a visiting professor at a bunch of other schools. In fact, uh, all, all graduate schools, but I just finished teaching a course for uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary. So uh, I do a lot of that, a lot of speaking, a lot of traveling, but Liberty is my main focus. And as far as teaching, I've done, I finished undergrad years ago. I rarely do a master's. Almost my entire teaching now is at the PhD level. And I teach a few courses a year. And these are hopefully our up and coming young stars. Probably one third of the students I have in the PhD program are already professors mm. and they're just looking for their, you know, terminal degree. And it's a program in theology and apologetics. I do the apologetics courses. That's about where I am. I do a lot of writing. I'm in the middle of a magnum opus on the resurrection. I'm at about, I don't keep a running total. Every chapter is paid, paginated differently, but I'm about, 4,750 pages. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to get my hands on that then. I am. <laughs> I'm excited to be done this <laughs> next month. It's your magnum opus. Well, me next month makes six full years. Wow. Literally, seriously, at 70 hours a week. And, and one thing to 70, 70 hours is a low week. I should hit about 75 this week. I keep track. It's my inspiration. But, <laughs> But what a lot of people don't understand is I'm not doing the research during these six years. My research has been done uh, right. for years. My dissertation way back in, in 76. But uh, it's all writing. It's everything. It's one long argument. So it's slow. Very, very slow. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you are one of the prominent world-renowned scholars on this topic of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's exactly what I want to dive into right now. Uh, and remind me, you've, you've told me this a few minutes ago before we started the recording. How many interviews have you done? Uh, well, I have to keep track of them for, for accrediting purposes. So I, it's pretty accurate. Approximately 750 interviews. 750. Uh, Radio, guys, television, you guys are iTunes, listening. YouTube. <laughs> Hey guys, if you guys are listening to this, we are on with uh, Dr. Gary, who I'm telling you, this is one of the leading voices in this realm. So everything you're about to hear is from a critical scholarly perspective. It is peer-reviewed, is tested. He is one of the voices in this. So without further ado, let's, let's get into the topic of the resurrection. Uh, and so before we get into some of the facts and some of the discussion, 
why is it important for us as Christians to be able to defend the resurrection of Jesus as a historically reliable event? You know, Braden, I, I think I could give several reasons. I would say, biggest reason, it's the center of our faith. I mean, yeah. I often, you know, tease people by using this analogy, but I'll say it's the step onto the yellow brick road that gives us a path to go. Don't, don't be worried about lions and tigers and bears and things on each side of the path straight ahead. And we're walking toward the Emerald City. So the resurrection is the center which launches Christians on their path of discipleship and following and ends up in eternity. It's a wonderful, complete message. But unlike so many, it doesn't leave this middle life between now and death. It doesn't leave that life unexplained or not important, or I'm just sitting here waiting for my time. It's not that at all. It's telling others about it. And I'm not a forceful kind of person. People can make their own decision. They can look at the data. If they don't want to decide, that's fine. They do. Hey, that's okay. I'm invited to go to universities. I'm often co-sponsored by atheist groups. It's incredible. Hmm. So I'm given I'm given information. I love Greg Kokel's analogy. Um, I try to put pebbles in people's shoes. You know, it's my job to make them think. So, so one reason is it's the center of our faith. It's the, it is the yellow brick road. Secondly, it's the way they did it in the New Testament. From Acts 13 to 19, over and over again, uh, when they went and proclaimed, when you count, I know you can't do this by head count, but in the book of Acts, when you do a study on how many different pointers the apostle would give as to why you should believe, the resurrection hits, heads the list. Paul would go into synagogues and say, hey, I want to talk to you guys out of the Old Testament. The Messiah is coming. In fact, you missed him. He's already here and he's been raised from the dead. Don't you think you ought to believe? And what's interesting is that in Acts 17, you get these little words. Paul entered the synagogue as his custom was in English. So a dialogue centering on the resurrection specifically says it centers on the Messiahship and resurrection of Jesus. Centering on the resurrection was his custom. That's how he did it. So those are two good reasons. The center of our faith, and it was what was originally proclaimed. I could also say, thirdly, it's unique. There's no other founder of a world religion who even, uh, you know, of a major, I'm not talking about really minor people, but uh, he's the only founder of a major world religion that even claims to have been raised from the dead. So it's special. It's different. It's unique. Yeah, There's absolutely. History for you. No, those are three great and very memorable reasons. And uh, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's where you're drawing from. Uh, that is the hinge of all the Christian faith. Right. If the resurrection isn't true, our whole faith is in vain. And uh, so that, that's, that's why it is so important for us Christians. If nothing else in the realm of apologetics to gather an interest to be educated in, I think this is the topic. Well, you're right. You're right. I tell my grad students, listen, we get hung up on the goofiest topics sometimes. Mm. We think it is really important how to answer, what's my eschatology? Uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, or an in-between kind of Baptistic view. Now, if someone hears me, they're going, how dare you say that's not important? Okay, great. Let me make a distinction. These questions are important in a lesser sense, but they're not the center of our faith. The yellow brick road 
going to the Emerald City is not determined by whether you take a Calvinistic or Arminian stance. I'm sorry. The center of Christianity is the gospel. And whenever the gospel is defined, whenever, it always centers around three facts, deity, death, resurrection. We often say deity, death, resurrection, but death is probably only mentioned in these texts that define the gospel, maybe a half dozen times. So deity, death, resurrection, that's the key. That's what we should be about. And then a critic says, no, 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 help me through this issue. Why are there so-called genocide passages in the Old Testament? <laughs> hey, what do you believe about creation? Hey, what do you believe about the time of the second coming? Fine. Let's try to stay on topic. So I, I totally agree with you. I have 1 Corinthians, that is 1 Corinthians 15, first 20 verses. And to stay on topic means to stay on the gospel, of which the resurrection is the center. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to repeat that. So the important things to stay on topic with are the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Exactly. That is where we need to major in. It is exactly. good to expand our knowledge. It's good to have informed, educated opinions about other relevant questions but the deity, death, resurrection. So now let's talk about some of those facts. Uh, when it comes to building a concise argument uh, conversationally with people about this topic, what are some of the key ones that substantiate the resurrection of Jesus that everyday average Christians need to be aware of? Okay, well, I start out, well, let me back up. Many contemporary scholars, many of whom are quite far to the left, still, their practice is to start out telling you a list of 10, 20, 15 things we can know about the historical Jesus. They often go from birth to, to you know, to the end of his life. Well, I've, I've started with a list like that that's only on the last, from death, from the death on, death of Jesus on. And I start with a list of, of 12, what I variously call known or accepted facts. Almost most Christians, most critics, accept them. Okay, that's a dozen. Then I cut that dozen in half and say, these six are by far the most important. And those six are what I call the minimal facts. Mm -hmm. I can define them in just a sentence or two. But basically the six, you're not going to have hardly any disagreement from anybody. And the six I always give are that Jesus died on the cross, the disciples had experiences, and I'm careful in my words here, the disciples had experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. They proclaimed it very, very early. Critics now are saying that proclamation can be dated months after the cross. Mm. Fourthly, they were transformed by it. I don't say they were so transformed they died. It's hard to prove very many of the disciples died, but you could say this. They were so transformed that they were willing to die. And then Paul and James, five and six, are two skeptics, one a family member, one a guy with, we could say, had a PhD in Old Testament under Gamaliel. True. And so we have a scholar and a family member, different kinds of skeptics, and they came to believe. These facts are very, very important. And then I often say six plus one, one from my longer list of 12, that is not a minimal fact, doesn't meet, meet my two requirements, but it's very, very well evidence is the empty tomb. So I often say, I, don't, I do not include the empty tomb as a minimal fact, but I give those six, crucifixion, experiences of the disciples, early proclamation, turned the world upside down, Paul and James, that's six. And then I'll say, empty tomb is almost admitted by enough guys 
to include in this list. See, the list I use, I would say 90-something percent of critical scholars admit to six. Impetum is, quote, unquote, down, not down very far, but it's down to about 75% of critical scholars. So I call it six plus one. That's a basis I'm going to use. And here's my one-liner. These six plus one facts indicate that the resurrection is by far the best explanation for what the data say. Mm. That's really good. And help me out here uh, as from a historical argument. Is it fair to say that another reason why we find the empty tomb compelling is because it, it was well enough known where the burial place of Jesus was, where at least in the first century, maybe not today to the same degree, but at least in the first century, if right. they wanted to stop the movement, either the Jews who had different motives versus the Romans for wanting to stomp the Christian movement, couldn't they have just gone to the tomb and said, hey, here's the body? And I know that there's a theories around the stolen body, but sure. the tomb being a public place, any comment on that? Yeah, I, it, I have a list on this big magnum opus I'm doing. I have a list of over 20 evidences just for the empty tomb. The mm. interesting thing is all 20 are critically ascertained. Oh, good. I'm using critical reasons. I'm not saying here's a verse. We don't have that many verses, but I'm not using verses. I'm saying it passes this test, it passes this test, it passes this test. And there's a half dozen really good arguments. And the one you just mentioned is one, in my opinion, of the top two. The best two arguments for the uh, empty tomb are number one, the women report it. And that's great because four different writers, different parts of the Mediterranean. Yeah, Matthew may have looked, may have used Mark. Luke says he used sources. Understandable, but they weren't looking over each other's shoulders. Mm. And as they're telling the story, why does Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why they all say the first ones that went to the tomb are the women? Why? Now, we do know in Luke and John, and that shows you they're not looking over shoulders, Luke and John are the only two who report this, um, we're told that men went to the tomb to back up the women. Luke just says certain of our brothers, certain of our brethren, John names Peter and John, uh, who knows, there could have been others, but Peter and John for sure go to the tomb. Why couldn't these four guys have said, well, here's my data. Number one, our best disciples went to the tomb and checked it out. That would be true, but you're starting with something that may have happened at 10 o'clock or, or noon. Why do they start with the women? And why do they start unanimously with the women? And why do the women get four votes where the men going to the tomb only get two? Luke and John. There's a very simple reason. All four said the women because, duh, it was the women. They went there. And they weren't good witnesses. So that shows you I'm telling the truth. That's one. Second one is the one you mentioned. It happened in Jerusalem. If you're going to proclaim an empty tomb and the tomb is closed for crying out loud, Go to Rome and proclaim it. Go to Alexandria and proclaim it. Go to Damascus. No one's going to get on a bus or a boat and go down to, uh, no one's going to email somebody and say, hey, dude, go check out this tomb and see if the teaching's true. But if you say it's in the city and everybody knows the location of jo Joseph's tomb, you all know Joseph, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and, you know, and they go there. Now, here's the key. Critics sometimes say, they try to jump the, Gun a little. They go, hey, even according to your own book, the first sermon's not preached for 50 days. What if they open up the tomb and there was a body there, but it was too late to tell who it was? Okay, two responses. From pathologists who do bodies all the time, 
50 days is not too much not to tell a body. Secondly, even if the face, let's say, were messed up, like when a body's found in a river or something, and the face is messed up, you still have nail holes. Why are there nail holes in the wrists and in the feet? This guy looks like somebody who was crucified. Here's the second problem. The gospel presentation was not, there's a guy in the tomb, we don't know who it is. The gospel presentation is, the tomb is empty. If it's not empty, and there's a dead guy there who's been dead for a long time, we don't know who he is, you lose, because you say it's empty. That tomb had to be empty. And it was probably a 15-minute walk for people who heard the disciples say it. So yeah, that's a one-two punch. Uh, the women, why them when you got the men too? And secondly, don't do it in Jerusalem. It's stupid. Yeah, amen. No, that, that's really good. I, I loved some of those thoughts. I've been studying this uh, on my own for a few years now, and some things you said really uh, just, man, solidified some of these things. So that's great. And then also uh, going to the stolen body theory, which obviously I think is ridiculous, but from your standpoint, what makes it compelling to say that is a ridiculous view to think of a stolen, a stealing well, body? There's a, there's a variety of stolen body theories, but they break down into two categories. Who did it? I think the two categories are the disciples did it, non-disciples did it. I don't care how fancy you want to get. You can say it wasn't the disciples, that's dumb, because you don't, you don't die. People die for mistaken theories. People don't die for things they know to be true or deeply yeah. believe to be true. All right, let's get the disciples out of there. But let me get really tricky on you. Uh, let's say an unknown dude stole the body. Okay, that's real, that's real funny. That's, that's great. Okay, first of all, just a comment. I know we can't decide headcount, and I don't. We decide because of data. What do the data say? But nobody has held the disciples stole the body. I mean, you might find a couple of guys hinting at it, but you've got virtually no takers in over 200 years among the critics. Something's wrong with this theory. Okay. Um, now, the other the disciples stealing the body is just silly. You don't die for what you believe to be for what you think is true, and you're on the yellow brick road and going to the Emerald City, it's a whole reason you're doing those things. What good is it to lie about it? You just made the city at the end, you just made it disappear if you're lying about it. Why are you going to give your whole life to it? Um, but you say, okay, 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 fine. What about my unknown person theory? Here's the problem with somebody else stole the body. I could grant it. What do you get out of the deal? You get, I've just explained the empty tomb. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, here's my first move when you say an unknown guy did it. I'll say, I'll say, Braden, um, I've given you several evidences for the empty tomb, and I could tell you 20 of them. Before we go any further, I would like some first century evidence from you on how do we know some unknown disciple stole the body. Give me some first. I'm not going to be sit here and give 20 evidences and you can sit there and go, oh, no, how about this? You're a loser. That's bad. Give me some, which, which is what the critical community does a lot. Give me some evidence. You oh, play the game, I'm playing. If you're going to tell me it's not empty, I give you 20 reasons. If you tell me what happened, I'm going to say, hey, you've got a burden of proof there. Tell me what happened. You won't, get, you won't be able to get anywhere with first century persons who stole the body. Secondly, what have you done? You go, well, I've explained the empty tomb. Good for you. What's the best evidence for the resurrection? 
the appearances by far everybody says so so yeah if you take the empty tomb away from me remember that's my six plus one it was an add-on it wasn't one of the big six but yeah to get my plus one that would hurt i don't want to lose it it's like you're saying well, in football, I'm not taking your star receiver or your quarterback away, but you know that offensive lineman, the quarterback really needs him. He's important. Yes, he is. You're taking something important from me if you take the empty tomb, but you haven't disproven my case. My quarterback can still beat your guys without that defensive lineman, the offensive lineman. And that's kind of what I'm saying. The, the, somebody else stole the body theory. It does virtually nothing. You're not hurting my theory. I could beat you if I take that offensive lineman right off the field. I could beat you. So you're not explaining enough. So it's, it's, it's just frustrating to take a tomb body because you either get yourself in a hole with the disciples or you don't help yourself very much with others. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. And now thinking through the fact of how, and reminding listeners so that way we're not confused at all, we are talking a bodily resurrection. We're not talking about how a Jehovah's Witness would say a spiritual resurrection. No, a physical resurrected Christ. That is the whole thing that we're hinging on. And so with the physical resurrection in these appearances for 40 days afterward, according to the book of Acts, uh, is there any evidence as to how this could be like some sort of, um, I don't know, where people are just making up stuff up in their minds. They're just seeing things because they want to see it. How do you respond to those sort of objections? Which one do you want to do? That they've, that they've just literally made it up? No, I, I, let's, uh, let's assume it sincerity even from the skeptics so that they are maybe having an illusion, even though there's hundreds of people that, that they're all having an illusion about this. Yeah, now that's the problem. If it's a formal hallucination or some kind of phenomena, mm-hmm. we refute illusions. Well, let's just let's just note the difference. An illusion is when you see something and think it's something else. You think the bear in the woods is Bigfoot, and you say, "I got him on tape. I've seen Bigfoot." You may really believe that. You're driving on the highway on a summer day, and it looks like water is going across the road. It's heat waves. It's not water. When you get there and you go, where's the water? It's not there. That's an illusion. Um, You see a ghost in your house. No, that was your friend who came over. He let himself in the house. He walked through the room. You forgot somebody's there. You're seeing somebody, but you misinterpret the data. That's illusion. Mm. Hallucination is much more radical. Hallucination is... There is no external data for what I'm reporting. It's all in my head. All right, here's the problems. Both kinds, uh, the bear is Bigfoot and um, Jesus is here next to me, but your friends are here playing cards or whatever and nobody can see Jesus. Nobody can see Jesus. Both illusions and hallucinations are disproven by data. That's the magical word. Yeah. I checked it out. I got an expert to look at this. He said, man, that's not Bigfoot, you silly guy. It's a bear, and it's a brown bear. I tell you the species, and he's about eight foot tall, and he's pretty good size. He's bigger than average bear, but blah, blah, blah. Okay, with hallucination, your buddies, and you stop, and you go, Jesus, what are you doing here? And they look around, and before you can even finish the conversation with Jesus, somebody's calling 911. They think, they think you are seeing, you know, you know, cause you're talking to something, not a bear that's Bigfoot. You're talking into space saying Jesus is standing next to me and there's nobody there. Now the problem with that is hallucinations. Bears are not Bigfoot 
because we have photographs, we have guys who see them. You go back out there to that same place, you camp out, you put some food out there, but you're not hunting them like the hunters do. You're watching, and sure enough, it's a bear. We explode our theories, bad theories with data. The disciples, if it's an idea in your mind, it's in your mind, you see this image, your deceased wife, your deceased grandparent. Nobody else sees that image. The point is, it's in your mind. It's not external. And five people aren't going to see the same thing. Ten people are definitely not going to see the same thing. And the list in 1 Corinthians 15, which is real early, you've got three groups. The 12, a group called all the apostles, and this big group called 500 brothers. Now, the interesting thing about 500 brothers, it could be like the feeding of the 5,000. Which or is just the women. Yeah, the women and children are there. That could have been 10, 12,000 people. Well, mm. when Jesus appears to 500, that could easily have been 700. What are you going to do? Put signs up? No women and children allowed? I mean, <laughs> anybody can come. And in the upper room, that group that was in the upper room before the ascension is over 100, 120. So it was a large, it's a large meeting. And I've got a friend who surveys real skeptical New Testament scholars, like the Jesus Seminar and other guys. He surveys them. <laughs> You'd be surprised how much respect there is for the appearance of the 500. And when my friend says, hey, what's the biggest problem with the hallucinations theory? These critics who, you know, the Jesus Seminar rejects, depending on how you count the, the coloring, reject about 90% of the red letter words of Jesus in the New Testament. And they're going, well, it's that early creed from Paul where 500 people, maybe more, saw Jesus at the same time. They give you the same reason. So the naturalistic theories have fallen on hard times today. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, one of the things I've always found interesting, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, but the fact that, you know, you think of, let's say someone was inventing a religion, typically that betters the founder's circumstances and even the follower's circumstances. But then you think of Christianity and its position in the first century. Well, being a follower of Christ did not better your status. It didn't better the immediate outcome of your circumstances. And, it, and from a Jewish perspective, it didn't. It didn't better your, st- uh, your position within the community as a Jew. It make it from right. a Roman standpoint, it didn't either. And so can you just put a comment there? Like, does that help bolster the belief in the resurrection? It does, so it does because according to the Gospels, for those who accept them, several of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. One was a tax collector. We have information on what they were doing. Now, if you're a fisherman, hard work, but you are supporting your family. Tax collector, eh, a little bit sleazy work, possibly, but you are supporting your family. What are you going to do when you walk away, go around the countryside? That arrow just missed my head by an inch. Um, They put themselves in situations, and, and somebody might say, well, how do you read their minds? How do you know they're willing to die for this? I'd say, I don't need to read their minds. Just look where they go. They always walk into the trouble spots. Like Paul, I don't think Paul would have hesitated to go back into Lystra where he was stoned or go back to Philippi where he was whipped and put in a stock and imprisoned. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would hesitate. Um, they, Paul gives lists of everything he suffered. He said, three times I've taken the famous 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Um, you, don't, you don't walk in places for the for the... For the right to tell people, come on up on the yellow brick road with me, and let's walk toward the Emerald City. You know, I've got a a really good friend. He's not a Christian. He's Jewish. And he's a well-known lecturer 
and he says, when I go to places to lecture, I frequently go to Baptist churches. I'm Jewish. I've got something they want to hear. He's an expert on the Shroud of Turin. His uh, name is Barry Schwartz, really well-known guy. And Barry says, Barry says, they always come up to me and say, Barry, we're not trying to, we're not trying to tease you or force you or, but dude, we want, we want you in heaven. We want you to be one of us. And Barry says, amazingly, he said, it took me a while to realize these people don't hate me. They love me. They want the best for me. I may not agree with them, but don't despise their message. They want me on the right side. They want me the yellow brick road because what they tell me is it's not just in the future. Life can be better right now and be better than Barry. Won't you please come and join us? And he said that to me. He said it to me a few times. I'm thinking, this is so, his dad was an Orthodox Jew. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just, this is incredible. Barry's such a neat guy. He understands. Why does he keep going back to these churches? He knows they're not after him or hating him. In fact, they love him. They do. They support Israel, other things. So Christians did put them, and by the way, the four big names, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, of those four names, we have first century martyrdom reports for three of the four. Only John, we don't have first century. And a lot of Christians very commonly say John uh, didn't die uh, by by persecution. He's the only one that didn't die. Well, that's really hard to prove. But the point is, we have a second century source for the martyrdom of John. And that's not old. That's not very old. So they're the big four, at least three of them, uh, Peter, Paul, and John, sorry, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, all died by martyrdom, according to the sources. And John may have. That's pretty good data for why they're on the shoulder brick road and why they want you up there too. Yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, love everything you said on that. A, a quick little side question here. Out of the, you know, you're you're an expert with this topic and everything. Do you have a favorite gospel account and how it depicts the resurrection? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, you wouldn't take you wouldn't take Mark because most people think there yeah. are no narrative uh, appearances in Mark. Matthew's quite short. Um, I would take either Luke or the two chapters in John. Of course, when you say John, most people concentrate in chapter 20, not chapter 21. That's the fishing scene, and that's okay. But John 20 is a little richer. It's got Mary at the tomb, and she holds him by the feet, and women hold him by the feet in Matthew too. I would say probably Luke, Luke 24. Nice. Yeah, no, that's great. I just wanted to wait. Luke 24 is the second longest resurrection passage in the New Testament, just slightly shorter than the 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 15 is not only the longest, it is the earliest. Oh, yeah. No, that is a good note. Uh, Good point. The dating of that is important, too. It it is fascinating that the uh, message and proclamation of resurrection took root, literally took root through the form of local churches being established in a few different areas and, um, you know, Jerusalem. All the, all the way to Rome. and All the way to Rome before yeah. uh, the gospel accounts were even well circulated. Yeah, and, the, you know, a lot of this is, is um, uh, it gets to be a little bit hearsay after a long time, but I've got a good PhD student who's Indian from the uh, country of India, and he was telling me some of the basis for the stories in India that Thomas went all the way to India and died as a martyr, and they locate it with a family name. Like they have a lot of people named Abraham. They have a lot of people named Thomas in India. And uh, 
I mean, it's a long tradition, and I'm not saying it's very, you know, very trustworthy, and I told him that, but he said the tradition is so rich in India that Thomas was there. That's a long way east and a long way west and a long way north. Mm. So. No, good point. In the last few minutes on this topic, uh, I would love just to hear any advice or uh, tactics you think are helpful for, again, average Christians who work in the marketplace, work in the world, to be able to have gospel conversations about the historical reliability of the resurrection. Any, any just tactics, advice, key things, give it to you. Well, I've made the comment throughout that Christians are often about witnessing and sharing their faith. It's because they love people, not because they hate people. And I, and Greg Kokel's little comment, you know, well-known apologist about putting a stone in people's shoe. I like to leave them with things to think about. Um, there are different ways to do reliability. My my teaching assistant, Ben Shaw, who people will be hearing from, he's got 20 publications already, but, but Ben's put together a really neat PowerPoint on 12 different ways to do reliability. If you've got time to develop an argument and you want to do a full reliability thing, it's kind of difficult to show that the Gospels weren't helpful, you know, in presentation. But if I were going to do a short talk with somebody, somebody asks me on a plane, what do I do? And I remember a conversation I had with a doctorate in psychology professor who asked me once start a conversation and i would use the minimal facts argument here's six facts they're not denied the best explanation is resurrection and when they say well yeah but you're asking me to believe in another world um that's when i go time out let's talk about another world and i'll give them evidences for afterlife and if you already know there's an, another world in the form of the same form of the resurrection the same species i.e afterlife if you're doing the same thing, then the, ev- the resurrection looks a lot more likely. So that's how I would do it quickly. A uh, conversation of the six facts, get, and they get them right, right where we started. They get them right back to the duty, death, resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, I would also like to encourage the audience, make sure you put the onus back on the skeptic, back on the person you're talking to. They right. have to have reason too and data, as you would say, right. to substantiate whatever their belief is. If they're yeah, going to be a right. skeptic, fine, but they at least have to have reason and good tested reason. So don't be afraid to ask the questions back to them. That's right. They're, they want to throw all the fastballs and let, and let you see if you can hit them. There comes a time when, uh, you know, you want to check out your ability to do the same thing. And if they don't have data, it's neat to be sharp. It's neat to have quick comebacks. But number one, the anger you often get is not nice. That is so widespread. I recently uh, looked at a debate between a prominent New Testament scholar and an, and an atheist. And the atheist was real kind. And it's the atheist who said in the debate, I'm not one of those angry atheists. They're, it's common enough that he brought it up. I'd say try to, try to walk a mile in their shoes, try to understand. They could have had issues in their life with their pastor or their parents, or there could have been reasons. But for the most part, I'd stay on task. And I think that's the six things, the deity, death, resurrection. This is a good place to end. I tell my grad students, if all we know is that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, that's all we know. He's the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Guess what follows? Only Christianity. Mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah, but are you a Calvinist? I said only Christianity. What about the genocide passage in the Old Testament? Yeah, you're right. Okay. Only, only the gospel there. How about uh, the time of his coming? Yeah, we don't know. Let's, let's get on the gospel. <laughs> so you stay on that point. And there's many things you don't know. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? How should I know? But stay on deity, death, resurrection. And if that's all we know, 
what follows is the yellow brick road going all the way to the Emerald City. So the gospel is true. So good. And I'll make sure to have links down below. There's no way we addressed everything in a quick amount of time. I'm going to link to a few lectures some books. In fact, if, if there's one book of yours that you recommend, I know you have a forthcoming one, uh, which by the way, when is that one coming? Do you anticipate? The big one, we're probably a couple years away. This thing okay. is huge. Yeah. I would say the one I would recommend on this topic. Case for the Resurrection? The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus with Mike Lacona, good resurrection scholar himself and a good student, former student. Yes. Uh, I'd say that. And if I could mention this, Braden, my uh, website, GaryHabermas.com, oh, yeah. uh, not, nothing is for sale there. Nothing is for sale. So if there's ministry items, people can listen to things. I know my lectures are all over the place. I do these things. and I never go back and watch them. Anything they can get is fine. I don't sell them. I hope to make a mark. I hope there's a lot of stones and a lot of shoes. Wonderful. No, I'll link that down below. Thanks. Sure. Uh, wonderful. So guys, basically, let this be a conversation starter. Uh, I hope that you continue to dig in and research this. I think that every Christian has a responsibility in how we carry the name of Jesus with us to be able to understand to at least enough level to have conversations about this topic. Thanks so much, Dr. Gary. Uh, we'll see you next time on a special episode where we're going to have you back again.